Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me now, this is going to be a really fun one, folks, because you might recognize the name from last March when we talked about his debut book, The Last Exit, and he's back with a new book. Author Michael Kaufman is here. Michael, welcome back to the show, and I am very excited about this. Max, once again, great to be with you. You're you're fun to talk to. What can I say? Egg. That's it, really. I think I think that's <laughs> enough. We can stop the show right here. I'm fun to talk to. The end. No, no, we're gonna dive right into this. So, when we last had you on the show, it uh, it was for your book, The Last Exit, which is starring the interesting pairing of Jen Liu and Chandler. And uh, Jen Liu is a police officer. She's uh, she's a detective and investigator. And Chandler, well, he's not quite so present. He's actually a piece of tech in her head. They're back, though, for uh, for another adventure. And this time you're taking on climate change. And holy crap, what a topic to be diving into for this book. This book, of course, called The Last Resort, is out on January 10th through Crooked Lane Books. I want to start with that one, though. Crooked Lane Books, who are they and how did you get connected with them? Yeah, um, Crooked Lane is a wonderful indie mystery book publisher. Um, I don't know the number. They do quite a few books a year. Um, so they're not they're, they're not microscopic. They're a decent-sized indie publisher. and uh, But luckily distributed by Penguin Random House. So we have both the... What's nice about working with a, a, a smaller publisher, but then they, they can get the books into stores, essentially. Um, but they've, they're just wonderful to work with. Oh yeah, and and the name is so cool, Crooked Lane it Books. It is cool, huh? It really sounds yeah. it really sounds like like uh, they should be doing horror, and I'm sure they probably have a couple of horror titles because of the name, the name like that. Jeez, I know Crooked Lane. I know it, it, but it really for me conjures also conjures up images of you know fairy tales and the things we grew up with, and like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's very like, evocative, like very um, evocative. Pan's Labyrinth or Into the Woods. Yeah. You know all yeah. those titles. Oh, yes. Man. Yes. All right. So why don't you kind of walk us through the story of The Last Resort? What is happening in this one? Well, as uh, listeners may have guessed by hearing that uh, Jen's partner is a computer implant, you might have guessed it's not happening um, in 20, you know, 22 or 2023. Uh, this series is set uh, about 11 years in the future in Washington, D.C., and um I, I've got to jump in right away and say, yes, it is a near future story. Bad things are happening for sure. I mean, bad things are happening now in Washington, D.C. Why should, you know, you know, 11 years in the future be any different? But climate change is hitting hard. There's increasing inequality. But I have to say this is not, and I repeat, not another one of those grim dystopian books where by the end you just want to, you know, like jump off a bridge or something. I mean, this is... This is, it's, it's, it's a fun read. And part of it is because half of it is actually narrated by this bio implant in Jen Liu's brain, whose name is Chandler. And um, Chandler is, um, he's, this, he's this wannabe tough guy, but he has a hard time pulling it off because he's only, you know, about three years old. And um, so he has, he's got aspirations of, uh, or delusions of, if not grandeur, at least toughness. Let me tell you, though, Max, the amazing thing that, that, that I discovered as I started writing, first this, the, the first book in the series, and then now The Last Resort, as soon as I started writing 
the chapters that Chandler narrates. That's about half of each book he narrates. You know, the voice was right there. Readers, you know, I just keep hearing from readers and reviewers, I love Chandler, I love Chandler. That's very gratifying. But what I didn't know until I started writing was that he was going to be a full-blooded character. You know, he would he would change, he would grow, he would evolve, he would be full of contradictions. And so there's a, you know, with any good character, there's a character arc. I mean, one of the things that gets readers very bored very quickly, and we see this in, sadly, in some series where, you know, the character at the end of a book is exactly the same as at the beginning and will be that way forevermore. And the writing might be good. We may like the character, but, you know, humans change and we evolve and we face new challenges. Well, I knew this would be true for my lead character, Jen Liu, the detective. I had no idea that Chandler would also be developing as a character. So that's made the writing not only interesting, but a lot of fun for me, just sort of dealing with this this thing that could be a totally dystopian element. I mean, God, a computer implant, you know, know, telling you what to do. But it actually is one of the things that makes the books, makes them, I think, makes them fun. Mm-hmm. How would you? So say- yes, but but you were asking. I you know I didn't even answer your full question. I got into Chandler. I know. Well, well, well. You know what? Let us talk about the story in just a little bit. I actually want to stick with Chandler because yeah. definitely he was one of my favorite parts of the story. This kind of like wisecracking wannabe tough guy voicing your head. Man, I just come. I just really hope he comes with like a volume control or an off switch or something <laughs> like that because I couldn't take that all day. How would you say Chandler has grown though from the first book to now? He's growing up a bit. Um, you know, he's 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 the the, the biocomputer equivalent of a teenager, which you know, oh, good can, lord, no. If we've ever lived with a teenager, yes. Um, so he wants to, you know, he doesn't want to be told what to do anymore. Um, he wants to sort assert himself, and he wants to um, he wants to be listened to. He wants to be believed, and um, so you know, as you said, Jen has this voice in her head. She is able to turn him off, but. Um, as we saw in, in book one, there's, there's no spoilers here, but um, Chandler learns how to keep himself turned on, basically. And uh, we'll, we see that in book, uh, in, in in The Last Resort. Um, so, yeah, no, he he's there both helping drive the plot, but also adding, adding a new complication. Uh, and he, in this one, even more than in the first one, helps, uh, helps solve the crime by something he's able to do mm-hmm. that uh, a, a mere human would not. Now, for the folks at home who may be hearing all this for the first time, let's talk a bit about, you know, what Chandler's purpose is. What, why is he here? So Chandler is part of an experimental program. This is, set, as I said, in, in 2034 in Washington, D.C., and there's for a fairly small number of city detectives and cops, they've uh, been voluntold to be part of an experimental program <clears throat> where they have this, you know, this chip, this, this pretty sentient chip implanted in their brain. It's, it's actually, it's an awful thought, um, but um, to help them react more quickly uh, in, in moments of danger, to give them access to this world of information, to be able to uh, process vast amounts of information um, not as an, sort of an externality to, you know, we, we, we look something up on the computer, but as they're working, um, working within and at the direction of 
and on their own of the uh, of the of the officer. Um, and uh, it, it's I guess you could say it's also a possible check. It's it's an extension of you know a body cam or something. Um, but um, yeah, so that that that's that's why that's why Chandler exists. And um, uh, in book one, uh, Jen's uh, boyfriend and common law partner, uh, they live together. Finally, discovered um, that uh, Chandler uh, that that his the love of his life, uh, Jen, ha- happens to have this this uh, eavesdropper. And anyway, it's it's one more of the many complications that create interest and fun. But you were asking before about this world and this plot. And maybe I should actually answer your question. Yeah, I um, guess, you know, it would probably help to tell people what this is all about. Yeah, why not? Well, let's, yeah. let's do that thing. So the, the, the series, this Jen Lu series, you know, it's, it's set in the near future. And each of the books in the series are going to de- are or will deal with a- another social issue uh, or economic issue. Um, now, I have to say, I mean, my goal is entertainment. My goal is for readers to turn pages and have fun. But I also think that mystery readers and science fiction readers, because this is a, a, a genre-crossing book, I think are smart people. I think that at the same time as, you know, we like to escape into a good book, we also have brains and we want to think and we're engaged in the world. And, um, you know, we tend to be progressive folks. And... Um, uh, and so this series does engage with a series of issues. Uh, the first one with big pharma, uh, this one with uh, big oil and gas and climate change, but also with the issue of uh, violence against women. And 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 so, but it's not a it's not a lecture on any of these things. Um, when I want to lecture people, I either give a speech, which I do for a living, or I write a nonfiction book, which I also do. But um, yeah, this is to you know I, I'm telling a story, but weaving in things that we need to think about, um, that we need to think about now and certainly we'll need to continue to think about in the future. And um, so so this one, um, The Last Resort, starts with a bizarre accident on a very, very ritzy golf course in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, a, a woman is, is struck by a golf ball and within a couple of days, she's dead. And it would just seen as this is very strange this could happen. Uh, and it is possible, but it is so unlikely. Um, uh, but it's, it is possible. It's one of the many things I got to research um, on, on that. But um, what makes it uh, interesting to Jen Liu is that the um, Patty Garcia, who dies, is um, a media celebrity. She's being talked about as a presidential candidate. And she's a lawyer. She's a lawyer who has won a huge case in the Supreme Court that's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court that forces the big oil and gas companies to pay climate reparations. That is to say, since the moment that these companies knew that their that oil and gas um, was causing uh, this you know huge acceleration of climate change, from that moment on, Anything that they made in profits, even distributed profits, has to be sort of returned and returned uh, as a payment that would be used for uh, creating a, a green economy. And um, and in the book, the um, there's a bit of a ticking clock. This is a mystery, and uh, so there's a ticking clock for uh, for Patty Garcia to come up with proof that they actually knew decades ago um, 
that this was happening, even though they have barely begun to admit it now. Um, and we're talking about the difference of paying billions versus trillions of dollars. And so she's at the verge of this, this you know, her deadline. Um, maybe she's found the smoking gun to prove with this proof she needs. And then suddenly she dies in this weird accident. Now, everyone in the world, like 8 billion people on the planet are convinced it is an accident, except for one person. And that is Jen B. Liu. Even Chandler thinks it's an accident. But Jen is a stubborn person and has a great nose for crime. And she is convinced and starts investigating this. Well, as you might imagine, soon she's in the crosshairs of someone or some entity, or we don't know, well, we do know when you get to the end, that wants to see her out of the way as well, um, if she's able to prove it somehow was a murder, as improbable as it seems. So anyway, that's that's the story. That's the ride that the readers get to go on. And what a ride. This is so cool uh, and so much to unpack. But I want to start with the notion of uh, climate change. Obviously, the climate crisis, it's a big part of this book. And certainly, it's all over the news right now. It's every day there's some new story. Is what's going on right now, did this help to kind of frame the story? Did you kind of take like the headlines and put them into the book? Well, it's certainly been one of my preoccupations for for many years. I mean, we as a as a species, uh, and along with all other species, although they may not consciously know it, uh, are facing an existential crisis, meaning a crisis of our existence. Um, species are being wiped out at a staggering rate, and um, we're about to see. Uh, and this is, you know, this is, you know, there's no fun book to write about this. Um, we're about to see devastation. Um, you know, we're already seeing it. We're, we're seeing, you know, just in the past few years, uh, these, you know, massive forest fires, flooding, uh, you know, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, hurricane seasons being extended. Um, and sure, all those things have long happened. We've long had forest fires. We've long had hurricanes. But the we're having many more, um, you know, thousand-year storms or hundred-year storms and disasters and this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of, of, um, of the projected concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. Because it's quite simple. We've, humans over the past 100, 150 years have taken carbon that was sequestered in the earth for millions of years. It took millions of years to um, produce that carbon. And it just you know, settled into the earth and forests and under the ocean. And in the in in you know in a few generations we're burning it and releasing it into the atmosphere, and it's causing devastation. And it's going to cause not just these natural disasters to increase, but it's it's leading to um, uh, it's going to lead to you know huge areas that are heavily populated being flooded. Uh, it's going to lead to massive migrations. Uh, we're already seeing droughts emerging in the southwestern U.S. We're seeing that with rivers drying up. Uh, we're seeing this um, in in parts of Asia. I mean, the, the list is going to go on and on. And um, so, you know, it, it's hard not to be a thinking person and not to say, okay, we've, we, we've got to be thinking about this. And so in writing about it and writing about it as fiction and in a fun book, it, this sounds bizarre, but what I wanted to do is actually talk about one of the solutions. And this is, and one of the solutions is, I think, 
to make those who have profited from consciously uh, doing this stuff, I think they need to pay. Now, even though, and this is the big fiction of the book, um, the, the, the fiction of the book, uh, the true fiction of the book is they're trying to find proof that the oil companies knew um, it, it, all along that that, that um, burning fossil fuels was causing climate change, which of course they denied, 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 and sowed confusion. And I pretend in the book that there's no proof. Well, actually, we have proof. Uh, we know, and it's documented, the that uh, that that oil companies, including Exxon, for example, their scientists were saying back in the mid '60s, and they actually projected the rate of climate change, and they had it spot on. These were smart people; they knew this was happening. So that is the big fiction of the book. But um, I wanted to find a a fictional way to explore what I think is should be part of the solution, which is make those who've caused the problem pay for the problem. Hence that theme there. Was it a challenge to not make this a very doom and gloom kind of story? Because like you said, this is kind of a fun book, you know, Janet Chandler, there are almost this like a comically mismatched pair. What allowed it to be just fun is I think a couple things. One is I knew from the start of the series that I had to avoid a couple of things that bad fiction sometimes does. One is um, when writers uh, show their research. Um, you know, you're reading a book and the writer suddenly has, you know, a page of technical details about something. Or, you know, the, the, it, the, the character is going off to some wonderful part of the world and suddenly it's turned into a travelogue. And you just know the writer, it just wants to show all the research that, uh, that they did. And um, so, first of all, I didn't see this as, um, and the second mistake is to, you know, turn fiction into nonfiction. That is to say, this book is to educate the reader. Well, no. Um, you know, I, 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 this, this book is to, for readers to enjoy, it's to entertain. And so what that meant is I was able to avoid giving speeches about climate change. It's just there. It's just, it's just part of their reality. Um, and um it's uh, you know, it's just part of the reality, just like it's part of our reality. What really, though, allowed me to not just get sunk is I really, truly believe in the human capacity to change. I really believe, and I'm an optimistic person, in spite of this massive this most massive of all challenges that humans will ever face, I believe in our capacity as a species to adapt, to change, uh, to get things right, to turn things around. Uh, I'm a, I'm a real believer in, in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in that. And in a way, Jen Liu, um, represents that, you know, she's not an activist or anything like that, although her husband is, uh, but Jen is not an activist. She's not a political person. Uh, she doesn't, you know, she, nothing like that, but she's dogged. She's dogged. She just feels that if something needs to be done, and no one else is doing it, she's going to make it happen. And so just that spirit of, of just rolling up her sleeves and just not stopping and not backing down, I think is a human attribute. I think it's a wonderful human attribute. And I think that's part of what gives the book its, not just its liveliness, but its optimism. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's a feel-good book, even though it deals with these really serious issues. How do you remain so optimistic? Because I got to say, I am losing hope for the for the future every time I turn the news on. 
There are days. There are days when I, I Max, I'm totally with you. And um I you know, I think that the road to greater disaster is the road of of, of pessimism. Um, you know, one of the things that that entities like not just the oil and gas companies, but the big banks and insurance companies that invested heavily in those things, and the governments that continue to support those those companies, um, they want people on the sidelines. They want people thinking, oh, well, if they just, you know, buy an electric car and, you know, turn off their lights a bit more, that's, you know, that, then the problem solved. In other words, we should consume our way out of the crisis. They don't want us thinking as social actors. They don't want us really working together. They don't want us imagining a different world. And that's why I think so many of us were so excited a couple of years ago when this Swedish girl, she wasn't even a teenager, or she was barely a teenager, I guess, at the time, Greta Thunberg, decided to start organizing these school strikes. And she just said, this is our future, and we're going to do something. And I love that. I think it inspired a lot of people. And I think it continues to inspire a lot of people. When I when I speak to young people, um, they're pissed off, and rightly so, at um, the generations that came before. And they, you know, they'll just say, "Why did not? Why didn't you do more?" And they're absolutely right. But they also say, "We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get anywhere by just living our life, you know, blaming who came before. It's up to us to bring about change." And that's that's exciting for me. Um, that, that's that's really exciting for me. And it's not just you know teenagers. Um, we were I'm, I'm a granddad, and I've got a you know an eight year old and and a six year old, and we we were driving along with the uh, my wife and I with with the eight year old, and just chatting about this and that as one does when they're on a in a car. Um, it was my wife's electric car, I should add, but <laughs> there you go. But um, uh, so there we were driving along, and I can't remember how we got into it. But he started talking about climate change. And then he started saying, you know, that his generation is learning about the environment and, and um, uh, you know, the ecology and, you know, they're learning and, it, it, and they're going to change things, you know, when, they're, when, when all of them are older. And what was absolutely lovely was, first of all, he's aware of these things that, you know, when you and I were young, it, you know, we knew about littering, but that was it. Um, but so, you know, he, you know, this generation knows so much, but also just this, this, this statement of fact, we're going to, we're going to do things differently. And, um, and that, that excites me, that, that excites me. Um, and and that's that party, I think what we have to really hang on to and, um, and celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah, that's hard to do. And I'm amazed that, your grandson at eight was yeah. on this time. I can tell you when I was eight, I was not thinking about this at all. Not even a little bit. No so. But, but I do see what you're saying though. The, like the new generation, I think they're looking at the world and they're saying, what the hell happened to this place? Like they're basically yeah. inheriting this and they're inheriting a dumpster fire on a good day. And there aren't too many yeah. good days. So it's, it, it's definitely impressive to see this. And my sincere hope is that it's not too late to turn things around. But it's also, if I can just add one other thing, I, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, that, that they're in this 11 years in the future. Yes, climate change is hitting hard. There's growing inequality. And I think that's one of the things that is driving younger people because, you know, for our generation or generations, 
there was always that promise of yes, you know, we, you know, we can just things are going to keep getting better in terms of con consuming and producing more and shinier things, and we'll gadget our way out of any problems. And um, you know, young people are coming along and they're seeing that ain't happening. You know, the, the, there's you know more and more people are um, are are losing jobs. They're being de-skilled. Um, you know, machines are increasingly taking over. And it's not because of machines, it's because companies figure they can make more money using a machine than a person. And um, and that's the impetus. And I think younger people are saying this whole way we set up this economy is so out of whack. I mean, not only are we destroying the environment, we're destroying human beings. Um, it's just like this race to the bottom. And uh, so you, you see a lot of people thinking really deeply about, uh, you know, just about, the whole economic system and this idea we have to keep, uh, you know, growing the economy. I mean, anyway, we won't get into that now, but there's so much there. Oh, definitely, definitely. So, you know, then let us bring things back to the story. Let's talk about Genlu, your main character. Um, we talk a bit about how Chandler's grown, but how has she grown? Is she a very, a very different person in the new book? One of the things that's happened... Um, and we find this out early in the book. So as I say, I'm not going to, there won't be any spoilers in this interview. But um, at the end of the first book, and I, and I should say this, even though this is the second of a series, it is totally standalone. You can dive into the last resort without looking at the last exit, although go ahead and get both. Um, but um, uh, but she's um, gone through, she was almost killed, basically, in, in, uh, in the last exit. Uh, and um, this is, um, you know, it's, we have this image from from TV and movies of, um, you know, police officers who are not only, you know, gun happy, you know, they're just pulling out their guns everywhere and shooting wherever. Whereas even in, you know, in the United States, which which is, you know, m more police officers use their guns than anywhere in the world, I believe that's still true, like by far. But even there, the vast majority of police officers have never fired their gun in the line of duty. Um, you know, it's just it's it's a fairly small minority, let alone someone who's killed someone. But so we have this myth that 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 cops are just, like, you know, maybe there are some who are trigger happy, but most aren't. And um, uh, but also, you know, if you've been in a near death experience and if you've had to kill someone, it's. I, I think for anyone who's not a you know psychopath, it's, it, it's going to be something totally devastating. So she's recovering. She's she's um, you know at the beginning she's um, you know a number of months off out of um, you know past book one, um, but um, she's still and and her partner, uh, her her actual human partner is still going through um, the the after effects of what happened in book one. So she's up against. Um, some pretty tough realities. Um, she's up against some really tough realities. And um, and yet, you know, as this dogged person, uh, it's, she's just getting on. She's getting on with, with, with life. She's getting on with love um, and, um, you know, rebuilding her, her world. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's, that, I, that I love about Jen Liu is she's not... Um, you know, I say she's dogged, but she's not your macho stereotype. Um, one of the things that I'm not wild about at all, um, and this is someone who, me, who has worked extensively on issues around 
masculinity and supporting women's rights. That's you know been my day job, and uh, so I'm I'm someone who for decades has long been critical of our macho stereotypes of our ideals of manhood, which I don't think are good for the you know women. Certainly, have said they're not good for women, but I don't think they're good for men either. And one of the things that worries me is when increasingly when I see images of women action heroes who are just adopting just all the negative crap that men adopted. And yes, women should be able to adopt that crap as much as men should be able to adopt that crap. And it's fun to see women kick ass and all that. But the very things that I think have been detrimental to the planet, detrimental to women, and detrimental to men that men have done, I don't like seeing women saying, hey, we can kick ass too. So Jen Liu is not, she's, you know, she's, she can be tough for sure. She has to be for her job. But um, she's, um, you know, she's not, uh, I don't think she's got a macho bone in her body. You know, she's, uh, she's not like, how can I put this? She's, she's just a, a well-rounded human being. You know, she doesn't have to play it being tough. Um, but she just is because she's just determined. And she's not going to let anything stop her. But she doesn't have to sort of, you know, throw her weight around or, 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 or put others down. And I think it's in part because of, and here we get into a term that I'm sure many listeners know, intersectionality. That is, you know, we come with different parts of our identity. And Jen Liu uh, was raised by a single mother um, and um, who uh, was Chinese. And her father, who she doesn't know and never knew, um, and whose name she doesn't have, uh, was um, uh, uh, was probably, as far as Jen can figure out, because Jen has uh, blue eyes, um, which is unusual, uh, although possible for a Chinese woman, um, but was was a white guy. And so Jen grew up with, um, uh, you know, in the midst of racism that she experienced. And, and she lived through, as a cop, a huge upheaval in the D.C. police force that we hear about in book one, um, where a group of officers uh, joined civil rights people and unions and basically said enough is enough and um, led to a big transformation within the D.C. police force. So Jen is someone who, as I say, she's not you know an activist type. She's not someone who you know would have seen herself as politically progressive or politically anything. But in her gut, she's she's certainly on the side of of progress. She's on the side of um, of, of decency, she's on the side of um, the planet. She's on the side of of those who are working for, you know, diversity and inclusion. But you wouldn't hear any of those words in the book. It's just, you know, this isn't what the book is about. It's just her life and who she is. Um, now, you bring up the notion of like the kick-ass female character, and certainly it's a very good point because you have these female characters who are just trying to adopt all the tough guy stereotypes. But have you come across a good example of a strong female lead that doesn't do that? Mm. Well, I'd have to think about it. I, I, I'd have to say yes, because, you know, I read a lot. And, and, I'm, and I think some of the, both in, in mysteries and, and in, in, in science fiction and non, non, you know, just literature, there's so many great female characters. And, gosh, I mean, n n no one name pops into my brain as, as, as I say that. I wish I was someone who could just rhyme off names and titles. I bet you could, Max. Um, but, um, you know, I think that it's it's part of, of this incredible enlargement of the world of literature uh, that we are 
you know, talk about good things that we're experiencing right now. Um, when we see the number of um, of prominent, uh, not just women writers, but but uh, you know, fiction uh, that is focused around women, whether it's you know, straight ahead literature or mysteries or science fiction um, that is aimed at um, both women and men, as well as those who don't describe themselves within that gender binary. But, um, you know, the number of, and it's to speak about as a, as a man, I think there's so many men now who just love reading women authors. Um, you know, I just, uh, this, you know, I just read another book by Emma Donahue, uh, who's, you know, who I just think is an, an amazing writer and, uh, was kind enough to blurb, uh, the last exit and, um, you know, and just you know the the characters that 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 she creates are so stunning. She you know she wrote the room. She wrote uh, the wonder, which is now a, a TV series, which I haven't seen the series yet, but the book is spectacular. Um, Pull of the stars. Um, anyway, you know, there's just so many. So we're 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 living in this moment of 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 a real renaissance, I think, of of women writers and, and women leads. Uh, that, that that's that's exciting. Um, you know, sometimes there are those who treat the the opening of greater space as you know as, as limiting their world. You know, sometimes I'll I'll hear men say, and 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 men, you know, white men like myself say, "Wow, it's you know now you know publishers want to publish more women and more men and women of color, and it's going to be harder for me to get published." And you know. <laughs> I sort of laugh and I sort of say, well, you know, hey, welcome to the world. You know, we've had this this eight or 10,000 year long affirmative action program uh, for men and um, in particular in, 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 on some continents anyway for white men. And, um, you know, it partly it, it sort of evens things out. But it also, I think, opens such wonderful possibilities that we should just be celebrating and collectively celebrating and and. Um, you know, yeah, you, you know, as men, we do have to, we don't just have to compete with half of humanity, whether it's for a job or for, you know, the, the, the publisher you want to publish your book. We have, you know, we have to, you know, compete with, with increasing with everyone. And I think that that, you know, I think that pushes people to work harder, to do better, but it also can lead to some disappointments for sure. I mean, you know, it, it, there is a bit of paying for the sins of our fathers. I, I think there is some, there is some truth to that and we have to accept that. But basically, this is just such a wonderful time when we, you know, just think of, of the, you know, just the greater diversity of voices in the world of writing. It, it's so exciting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I want to take a step back and talk about your work with the White Ribbon Campaign. Uh, this is uh, this is a group which you co-founded, which works to end, uh, to end violence against women. Uh, you're a public speaker who uh, talks a lot about really ending the toxic masculinity of the world. How does all this influence you, uh, the overall story, especially with, uh, where your lead is a woman? Well, first of all, um, it made me very cautious about having a lead character who is a woman because we do have a rightful concern in the world of, of the arts about appropriating other people's voices. And, and part of the reason when I was first trying to figure out the series that, um, you know, th this character Chandler appeared and became a, a narrator of half the books um, I decided early on that Jen would not be the narrator. And it wasn't that her voice wouldn't be valued as the narrator, but I just thought, gee, am I as a man and a man who is not a racialized man, 
be the right person to write her voice. I decided no. I decided I could write Chandler, even though I've never been a, a computer, you know, sim. Um, but the the other half of the book is is just a you know is a third person narrative. So first of all, it made me aware of some of those issues. Um, it also made me, um, you know, find ways to to integrate some of those themes into the book, um, into into the whole series. So you know, I'm very you know, it, it's it's Jen lives in a uh, in a in a in a world now in a, in a in a city in a believe it or not a police force in um, uh, increasing a country that is LGBTQ positive. Um, her her work partner uh, is a gay married gay man. Um, so you know I, I want that just and I don't and, and I don't make a big deal out of it because it's just well I don't want it's no more unusual than if her male partner was married to a woman. It's just he's married to someone he loves. Period. So there's no there's no like statement about it. It's just like well that's that's the world. But I want to make sure that that was just part of this world. Um, but what I did do in this this book. Um, which I hadn't done in any of my fiction, is bring in the theme of violence against women. And that is, and it, it comes through um, one of the suspects, and we find yeah, fairly early on, uh, in, in well, suspects. As I said, Jen is the only person that thinks Patty Garcia was murdered. But one of the her suspects is her abusive ex-husband. So there's a bit of stuff on uh, on violence against women. That is definitely one of the themes in the book. Um, and it does relate to the work that I've done for a number of decades now, uh, both as um, as a writer, as speaker, as uh, an advocate, as an activist. Um, I've worked now probably in about 50 countries with the United Nations and different governments and NGOs and companies and unions um, to engage men, to engage men to support women's rights, uh, to work to end violence against women, for greater diversity and inclusion but also to positively improve the lives of men. And in particular, that work is, a lot of that work has been around um, the transformation of fatherhood. Uh, and for, for those men who are dads to not, to no longer see themselves helping out or babysitting, but to be an equal parent. And both dealing with the challenge of that, but also how wonderful, how, how wonderful it is to transform men's lives that way. And so this has been my major work preoccupation. And it's been, you know, there's been moments that have just been so incredible. Um, and it, just to see, you know, the groundswell of men who are, who just say, yes, I, you know, I, I, I'm on side. I want to be an ally with women. And when I co-founded this one campaign, the White Ribbon campaign, focused on ending violence against women back in 1991, uh, it was the first sort of mainstream public campaign anywhere in the world that was based on the idea that men could be, we didn't use the word allies, but could be allies with women in what was seen at the time as, only, quote, only a women's issue, which is pretty wild since it was men, not most men, but some men committing the violence. And um, and this idea of men as allies has now spread to into our workplaces, into sports. Uh, you know, we're seeing this in the, you know, these, these amazing demonstrations in Iran. Um, where you know the focus has been around supporting women and, and democracy, but women's rights, and the you know the the national soccer team in Iran, the men male team, um, basically came out in support of of of, of the you know of, of women and women protesters. I mean, this is unheard of stuff, and it's so exciting for me. So it shows a big change that's taking place, 
and um, which is really gratifying. You know, as, as, as uh, I'm not saying I started all that, but I'm, what I'm saying is that you know the the you know to see so many men, and as a man to see so many of my brothers now saying yes, we need to speak out. We do it not out of collective guilt, Max. This isn't about pointing fingers. This isn't about you know self-flagellation. This is not about collective blame. This is really, I guess you could say, an act of collective love, collective love for the women in our lives, you know, our daughters and wives and sisters, our mothers, our friends, um, wanting, you know, wanting them to have fairness and equality and the same things that not just the formal rights that we enjoy as men, but just the, the everyday experiences that we enjoy as men. Do you feel like this book helps to kind of push that message forward? I hope so. I hope so. I, you know, I, I hope on, on different levels. I think on the meta level, um, you know, um, when I see men with respect and carefully having a central woman character, um, I, think that that, um, I think that pushes it forward because it just says this is, you know, every bit is valuable for me to write about a person who is, you know, born you know, with, uh, you know, these very slight chromosomal differences, uh, you know, we're 98.6% exactly the same chromosomally. So we're, we're basically, we're the same creatures. But I think what it does is it validates, uh, you know, turns the male gaze away from um, just objectifying women and just understanding and appreciating women as subjects, subjects of their own destiny, subjects of the world, and celebrating um the, you know, celebrating women in that way. And so, I, you know, I do see that as, as, as an act of allyship. That's sort of at the big, you know, the big meta level. And no one's going to pick the, and no one's ever asked me that question. I've never even thought about that until you said it. And, but I, I think that's part of it. I, you know, it's, see, you know, you ask good questions, uh, as I said before. Um, but no, I never thought of that. But I, I think you're right, you know, that, that there is, that there is, you know, how does something like this contribute to those, those projects? Because yes, I can write about a, you know, weave in a theme around violence against women, but you know, yeah, you know, that's just a theme that's woven in. But I think there is something much deeper and much more important. And just saying, as men, uh, we should be a reading women writers, and b we should be re reading about women characters, uh, good guys, bad guys, you know. All, all of the above and just, you know, not making them marginal um, and just, and, and not just women in relation to men, you know, there's that, that whole thing um, where, you know, Hollywood movies uh, get judged by, is there actually dialogue between two women uh, that's not talking about a man and a, an astounding number of films historically only have women either talking to men we're talking to another woman about men. And um, so, there, you know, it's been real push to say, okay, women, you know, how, how to have women as subjects is they exist as full human beings in themselves in relation to other women, as well as in relation to men. And um, so, you know, I think that that's, again, part of the challenge. And, and it is part of the challenge in a book um, where um, she's in a police force. Yes, there's more women and it's, it's it's much more diverse and inclusive than our police forces now, but it's still it's still more men than women. Uh, her 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 captain is a man. Um, you know, there's a lot of men in her life basically, and um, so it's you know. But uh, 
uh, yeah, it's it, it's there. All right. Well, Michael, we are coming down to the end of the show here, but I want to talk a little more about the future of the series. So this is book book two in the Jen Lu series. Where's it going from here? Do you have an end in sight? I actually do. Um, I, you know, although it could change. Um, it, we find out in book one that, that Chandler is only going to live to be five years old. That, that's his, that, that's, how, that's how long these implants, you know, exist for. And he's already, you know, into his third year. And, um, you know, this is the sort of, this, this book is set, is not a year later. It's, it starts, oh, how many months later? Like four or five months after book one. So it is possible to get a number of books into this, um, you know, basically three-year period uh, since book one. And um, so there will be a number of books. I have ideas for the series. Um, I have a whole bunch of names. You might have detected being a clever person a certain pattern in the names um you are absolutely right uh last will reappear um but you know chandler is um he's got his the clock is ticking and he knows that and um so one of the things that i think is already happening not, not i think that is already happening and it's one of the the things that he's grappling with in this book is mortality um Mortality came up really big in book one because there is a longevity treatment in book one where the super rich can live pretty much forever, it's looking like. And um, and there's one rich person that is a character in book one who reappears in book two and um uh and um and is one of these, you know, um one of these who've had the longevity treatment. And um and for Chandler, he'd be happy to get past five years, let alone, you know, a hundred or two or three. So Chandler's dealing with mortality. He's also dealing with both the strengths of who he is and the limits that he has, because he only perceives the world through Jen Liu's senses. He, he's not in, you know, he doesn't, he, he can only, you know, see what she sees. And he, of course, some of the things that she experiences emotionally, like a smell, he doesn't, he knows what chemicals it's made of but he doesn't have that emotional connection with a smell um, or with a, you know, he just can record it. So um, yeah. So I have some ideas of how he's going to evolve, uh, how Jen is going to evolve things that are happening between, um, you know, in her relationship. Um, and um, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun ride. And I'm going to, you know, keep putting them out as long as there's uh, there's some interest. And it's just, it, it's, it's exciting to see, you know, you go from book one and, uh, you know, a new mystery writer. And um, now, you know, already I've begun to hear from some some people who've, uh, you know, pre-ordered because uh, we're talking before um, the release, um, uh, The Last Resort, and just you know, saying they're looking forward to what's happening. So as a writer, that you know, that's exciting. Oh, definitely. Definitely is. Especially when they say that they've already, like, pre- pre-ordered. It's like, wow, you look at that yeah. much that you're actually buying it ahead of time. Yeah. That's big. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, once again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. And for the folks at home, I'll tell you where to go. It's Michael Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N.com. It's all there. Pure to the book out January 10th through our good friends at Crooked Lane Books. And Michael, I'm very much looking forward to the next conversation. Max, I will write another book in the series just to get to talk to you again. Looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> 
Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. That brings this episode to a close. And this is it. My last interview of 2022. It has been an absolutely amazing year. And I want to thank each and every one of you for being a part of it. Believe me when I say that 2023 is going to be amazing. That's all for now, and I'll see you next year.